I don't know about you, but this week was when it really kind of set in with me for the first time this year that fall is actually upon us. The kids went back to school after what ended up being the, the longest March break in history. It started to get chilly outside. When I was biking on the trail this week, I noticed for the first time that there were some leaves that had already changed color on the trees. For the first time this year, it really started to feel like fall. And my absolute favorite thing about fall is the sense of newness and opportunity that it brings. When I was in school, I remember the feeling of getting new binders and a new pencil case and pledging to keep everything all nice and clean and tidy as the year went on. And I'd set new goals. I'd, I'd promise myself I wouldn't procrastinate and that kind of thing. And now as an adult, every fall, I print off a fresh calendar for every month of the coming year. And I put it up on my wall and I get out my, my colored pencil crayons and I plan stuff out. I schedule it, I color code it, and I get such a rush out of feeling so organized and moving forward into new vision. Fall feels like a springboard into new and exciting opportunities. But not this year. This year feels different, doesn't it? This year doesn't feel so much like a springboard into opportunity. It feels more like memories I have of being on the diving board uh, back when I was in swimming lessons, feeling all the pressure, knowing that I'm supposed to dive in and inevitably I'm going to eventually end up in the water, probably in the form of a belly flop. And with all of uh, my nerves and my fear uh, kind of taking over in my body, we're heading into fall this year with no idea how the weeks and months ahead of us are going to unfold. There's concern about the possibility of a second wave of this virus. The kids have gone back to school all masked up, uh, which has parents both super relieved, but also kind of on edge. As a society, we're navigating political tension and division and social upheaval, and all of this is going on on top of our own personal challenges. And as Christians, we're also wrestling with what it means to live out our faith when so many of the ways that we're used to worshiping and connecting with each other uh, and serving God are out of reach to us right now. I saw a Twitter post a little while ago and it said, surviving is the new thriving. Does that resonate with you at all? I found it strangely comforting to be reminded that this weariness is something that we're actually all navigating together. If you're feeling tired, if you're feeling like things have been hard, it's because things have actually been hard. And yet as followers of Jesus, we also know that there's hope. We know that God is still with us. And we know that he's still on the move in the world and in our lives, bringing healing and bringing wholeness and bringing his freedom. This morning, we're starting a new series that I think is going to be really helpful as we live in this tension and navigate this season. We're heading into a series that's going to help us to set aside the distractions and the debates and the opinions that can pull us off course. And we're going to focus our attention specifically on Jesus. The way that Jesus lived his life and the way that he invites us to live as his followers today. Because even when things feel chaotic and uncertain, even when we don't know what's coming and it feels like there's so much that's out of our control, Jesus always stays the same. And he's the only one that can offer us real life, even when life 
gets messy. In a few moments, we're going to turn to a passage where Jesus is getting his disciples ready to navigate the most difficult and disorienting situation that they're ever going to experience. But before we do that, I'm going to give you a moment just to think about a question. How would you explain your faith to somebody who knows nothing about Christianity? How would you describe to them what it means to be a Christian? One of the challenging things about being a Christian today is that there are all kinds of different opinions floating around about what that even means and what matters most as we live out our faith. If you were to go out into the streets and pull a hundred different people uh, with this question about what it means to be a Christian, you could get a hundred different answers. And to make matters even more confusing, you could go into a church and you could ask a hundred different people what it means to be a Christian. And even there, even in the church, you could get all kinds of different answers about what Christianity is actually all about. When some people think about what it means to be a Christian, they think about what they believe cognitively. It's all about having right doctrine. When some people think about what it means to be a Christian, what comes to mind are the things that Christians do. Christians are people who go to church. Christians are people who follow a certain set of rules or principles. But here's the thing, and you know this. Jesus invites us to something that is way bigger than what we believe. He invites us to something that is way bigger than just what we do. He invites us to something that goes deeper into the core of who we are and how we live and how we see things and how we interact with others. And he talks about this as life in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't just tell us about the way we should be living in the kingdom. He doesn't even just show us the way we should be living in the kingdom of God. Jesus actually says that he is the way in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the way. That's a big statement. Think about that for a minute. The early Christians actually weren't even called Christians initially. They were called followers of the way. Isn't that beautiful? There's like a sense of movement to it. It's an active faith. And Jesus doesn't just show us the way. He actually is the way. Let's look at John 14 verses 1 to 7. Now, just to set the stage for you as we head into this passage, at this point in the book of John, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's just shared a final meal with his disciples. He washed their feet, and he's trying to get them ready for what's about to happen. And so this is a really tender moment. There's heaviness in the room here. The disciples were people who had given up everything to follow Jesus. They loved Jesus. They trusted him. They wanted to be with him. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was going to do something big in the world. And now Jesus had just finished telling them that he was going to leave them. And not only that, but one of the disciples was going to betray him, and Peter was going to deny him. None of this had been what they were expecting. Everything that they understood about what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus was about to be pulled out from underneath of them. So needless to say, they're confused, and they're upset. And Jesus is trying to give them something that they can hold on to when it seems like everything is falling apart. So here we go. This is what Jesus says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. 
There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And when everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I'm going. So Jesus starts off by calling his disciples to trust. And the reason he calls them to trust is because he knows that when things start feeling like they're going out of control, when things start to look like they're hopeless, they're going to experience some temptation to give up, to walk away. But Jesus is calling them to hold tight to the trust that they developed in him because, of course, he knows that what looks like failure and defeat in the eyes of the world is actually the exact place where the power of God is about to be most fully revealed. The disciples just need to hang in there so that they can see how it all comes together. And then he tells them that he is going to his father's house to prepare a place for them, and then he's going to come back and get them so that they can be uh, together again, so that the disciples can be with Jesus. Now, when Jesus' disciples heard him talking about his father's house, the first thing that would have come to mind for them would have been the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt on earth, where heaven and earth collided. But the thing about the temple was that because God dwelt there and because God is holy, there were restrictions about who had access to different parts of the temple. Jesus here is pointing towards a new place, a new house, where his people will live in the presence of God and everything will be restored. And in this house, in the new house, there's going to be enough room for everyone, for all of them. And this is a passage that we often turn to for comfort at those times in our lives when we're uh, put face to face with death. Because, of course, this passage gives us hope about eternity, eternity that we get to spend in God's presence. But there's more uh, that's going on here in what Jesus is saying. As he continues in his conversation with his disciples, it becomes clear that he isn't just talking about making room for us in heaven when we die. There's more. There's another layer here. He goes on to talk about coming back after his resurrection to give his followers the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, they can live in God's presence now. Whenever Jesus talks about salvation, it always starts now. The kingdom of God broke into the world through Jesus, and it's here. It's already here, just not yet in its fullness. So there's an aspect of salvation that we can experience right now and a future promise that everything eventually is going to be fully restored. So Jesus says this, and then he looks at his disciples, and he says, you guys know the way to where I'm going. Now, needless to say, his disciples at this point are feeling a little bit confused. They're trying to wrap their heads around what Jesus is saying, but to be honest, it's been a lot. And you know that feeling. We all know that feeling, right? When somebody has just explained something and you feel like you should understand it, but you don't and you don't want to look stupid, and so you don't ask the question, but you just kind of desperately hope that somebody else does. That's how I imagine that the disciples were feeling in this moment. And thank goodness for Thomas. Thomas takes one for the team. Let's look at verse 5. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus, or sorry, Thomas wants Jesus to give him the address that he's going to so that he can pop it into the GPS. He doesn't understand. He's trying to piece all of this together. 
but he's actually pointing out something that's really important here, something that the disciples are all feeling and something that I think we feel too. Thomas is pointing out that there's a gap. There's a gap between where they are now and where Jesus is going. There's a gap between the moment that they find themselves in and the promise that Jesus has just given them of a future in God's presence. And he can't figure out the map that will lead them from where they are to where they're going. And so Jesus responds in verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus says, I am the way. And the Greek word that's used for way here literally talks about a route that's used for travel, like a road or a path or a highway. But it was also used to talk about a way of living, of thinking, of feeling, and of making decisions. Jesus says, I'm the truth. Jesus is the truth in the sense that he is the perfect representation of God the Father. There's nothing false in him. He can be trusted completely. And Jesus says that he is life. It's in Jesus that we find life in all of its fullness. And as we live out our faith, one of the traps that it's easy for us to fall into in the Western church is to focus all of our attention on the truth of Jesus, but not pay much attention to the way of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Truth matters. We need to know who God is and who he says that we are and what life is all about. And God's revealed himself to us so that we can know the truth and we can build our lives on that foundation. But the Jesus way and the Jesus truth go hand in hand. When we proclaim the truth about Jesus, but we don't shape our faith in the way of Jesus, things fall apart really quickly. We've seen this happen throughout history, right? When the church has fought for power, when the church has resorted uh, to violence, or when the church has become involved in oppression, all apparently in the name of Jesus. And it happens in more subtle ways in our own lives and in our own churches. Because the truth is that we're so immersed in Western culture that sometimes we don't even realize how it's shaped the way that we understand our faith. We live in a world where we kind of grow up learning that we need to do whatever it takes to get ahead. We live in a world where we're taught that we should constantly be striving for more money and more status and more power and recognition. We live in a world where we're trained to sell products and manipulate emotions and protect ourselves from risk and to stay comfortable. The truth is that the ways of Jesus confront and challenge so much of what we consider normal in Western culture. But because it's just the water that we're swimming in, sometimes we don't even really notice. When Jesus was doing his ministry, what made him so radical and controversial wasn't just what he did. It was actually how he went about doing it. When Jesus walked the earth, there were other rabbis. The fact that Jesus was a rabbi didn't make him particularly unique. But the way that Jesus 
was different was the way he went about choosing his disciples, for example. He didn't stack a dream team. He didn't choose the cream of the crop, the kids who had gotten the top grades in their class. Jesus chose ordinary people. He chose fishermen. He chose Matthew, a tax collector. Tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth in this culture. As his movement grew, he included people who were pushed to the margins in his society. He broke down social barriers and associated with people who everyone else rejected. It wasn't the fact that Jesus was a rabbi that made him unique. It was how he lived into that role. It was who he included in his movement. What does that tell us about who God is and what it means to live in the way of Jesus? We know that Jesus did miracles throughout his ministry. He healed people. He fed people. He cast out demons. He walked on water. But what was just as remarkable as the the miracles that Jesus actually did was the way that he did them. He never made a show of it. He never did miracles to gain status or build up his reputation. Actually, sometimes he got himself into trouble for healing on the Sabbath and breaking religious laws and all of this. The miracles that Jesus did were always for the sake of others. They were always aimed at bringing healing and wholeness and restoration. What I find uh, just as mind-blowing as the miracles that Jesus did was the miracles that he didn't do, considering he had supernatural power. For example, I would have expected a whole lot more teleportation. Imagine how efficient Jesus could have been in his ministry if he had just used teleportation. But he didn't do it. Jesus never used supernatural power to provide for his own needs. When he was thirsty, he went to a well and he asked a woman for a drink of water. He didn't just make a bottle of Gatorade miraculously appear. And he never used his power to take down the people who were against him. It would have made his life a whole lot easier if he did, but he never did it. The fact that Jesus did miracles showed people that he had God's power moving in him. But what does the way that Jesus did his miracles tell us about who God is and about what it looks like to be one of Jesus' followers? The Jewish people in Jesus' time uh, were expecting a Messiah. They'd been waiting for a Messiah who would come and free them from oppression. But most of them were expecting a warrior king, somebody who would use violence and power to overthrow the Romans so that the Jewish people could live in peace. But Jesus was a different kind of Messiah. He followed a different way. The way that Jesus overcame evil and brought freedom wasn't through violence at all. It was through sacrifice. It was by giving up his life on a Roman cross. And his death and resurrection didn't just bring freedom to the Jewish people. It threw open the doors to the kingdom of heaven so that everyone could be included. What does that tell us about God and what it means to live in the ways of Jesus as we follow him? When I was in high school, there was a trend in Christian culture to wear bracelets that said WWJD. Maybe some of you had one of those bracelets. It stood for what would Jesus do? And the idea was that these, with these bracelets was that um, they would remind people as they went about their day-to-day lives to ask themselves that question and to try to do the things that Jesus would do. And that's an important question to think about, what Jesus would do in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But I think that there's a question that's even more important than that. And that's how would Jesus do it? 
I know that HWJDI doesn't really have the same ring to it as WWJD, but we can't miss this part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. How would Jesus do it? Our faith isn't just a matter of what we believe. It's a matter of how we work those beliefs into our lives. It's not just a matter of what we do. It's a matter of how we go about doing those things. Even in situations where we don't know what to do, we can embody the ways of Jesus. It impacts every aspect of our lives. Eugene Peterson says, if Christ is king, everything, quite literally everything and everyone has to be reimagined, reconfigured, reoriented to a way of life that's consistent with obedient following of Jesus. A few weeks ago, we heard from missionaries who were sharing the gospel and living out the kingdom of God overseas. And last week, uh, we heard about some of the ways that God is moving in our community through people from our own church. And as we move into this series, we have the opportunity to reflect on how the gospel is taking shape in each of our lives as we go back to the basics and focus on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We are living through a defining moment in history. These are unprecedented times. I don't know if you've heard that. Have you heard that before? These are unprecedented times. Nobody really knows how else to describe the situation that we're living through right now. And trust me, I'm like you. Okay, there are moments where I just wish that things would go back to the way they were before. But at the same time, I could not be more excited about what God's doing in this season because I believe that he's calling the church back to a faith that's truly centered in Jesus. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to focus on different aspects of what that looks like. Maybe you're listening this morning and you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe as long as you can remember. Maybe you were born on the pew of a church. If that's you, the invitation for you as we head into this series is to ask yourself if you're still actually following Jesus or if that was just a commitment that you made a long time ago. We can get to a place where our faith is really comfortable, where we know what we believe and we know the way that we should be acting. But Jesus calls us to follow him. And that's something that we need to decide to do every day. So let's look at Jesus uh, with a fresh set of lenses and let him lead us into new ways of actively living out our faith. Maybe you're listening this morning and you're not so sure about Christianity. Maybe you've got doubts. Maybe you've had bad experiences with Christians. There's no denying the reality that Christians have not always done a great job at representing Jesus. And if that's where you are today, the invitation to you as we head into this new series is to join along with us as we focus on Jesus and let him be the one who shapes your understanding of the Christian faith. I might be biased, but I really think that you're going to be amazed at how good the gospel truly is when we keep Jesus at the center of it. There was a blessing that was used by first century Jews uh, that really captures the kind of relationship that disciples had with their rabbis. And it went like this. May you always be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the imagery, of course, is that the disciples would follow their rabbi so closely that the dust that kicked up off of their feet would cover them. 
And we're invited into a relationship with Jesus that's actually even closer than that because his spirit is living within us. And so as we transition into this fall season where everything feels strange and uncertain, let's do it with a deep awareness of his presence with us and with an openness to where he wants to lead us as we follow him and trust that he is the way and the truth and the life. I'm going to close this morning by reading from Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30 from the message. This is an invitation from Jesus, and I believe that it's an invitation that he's extending to each one of us this morning, and it's, it's an invitation that we desperately need. He says, Are you tired? worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life. God, we thank you that we can trust you as we head into fall, into the season of uncertainty. And we thank you, God, that you reveal yourself to us through Jesus. Help us to be people who really embody your kingdom and embrace your ways as we follow you. In your name we pray, amen. As followers of the way, the early church would gather together to celebrate something that Jesus instilled or instituted into their lives. He called this communion or the Lord's Supper. We read this in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul also gives us an account of this sacred moment in history. This moment that Jesus says we're to pass on to one another, not in a ceremonial way, but in a way that centers our lives in him. You see, as Pastor Tamil said, we are called to live the ways of Jesus, and the only way that we can live the ways of Jesus is to make Jesus the center of our lives. And we often stray to the right or stray to the left, and we struggle to stay on that path called the way. Communion, Jesus instituted into their lives for the purpose of centering them back in him. And so it was a communal event. It wasn't an individual thing. It wasn't some kind of religious practice that the early church would do. It was about gathering together over a meal. Now, as most human beings do, the early church made mistakes, and that's where the Apostle Paul comes into this picture. The Apostle Paul corrects the Corinthian church in chapter 11, verse 23. He explains to them what the Lord explained to him about this coming together, this oneness, this centering their lives in Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For I first received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Will you take a small piece of bread? And will you just hold it up for a moment? And think about your week. Think about the day that you lived yesterday or the day before or the day that you're about to venture into. And think to yourself, was everything I did today unto the Lord? Was it centered in Jesus? And as we hold up this bread that represents his body that's broken for us, I want you to just take a moment and center yourself in his presence and give him this moment and this day as we reflect on the body that was broken for you and I. Father, we thank you for your body, for the sacrifice that you made. And may we be centered in the ways of Jesus all the days of our lives. Will you take this bread with me? As we're called to remember him, the Apostle Paul goes on to say, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new way of doing things. No longer the old covenant, but a new covenant. This cup will represent that new covenant in his blood. And he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's that remembrance again. That calling back to remembering what our lives are to be centered into. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this cup, that it represents our lives in the new covenant, our lives that are possible because you shed your blood as a living sacrifice for us. And so, Lord, the things that you accomplished through the the shedding of your blood, the conquering of evil and and death, we can live. And so, Lord, as we take this, Help us to center ourselves in the ways of Jesus each day. We take this in remembrance of you. Will you drink this cup with me? Pastor Tamil this morning laid a great foundation for our sermon series, The Jesus Way. And I'm really excited about where God is going to take us as a church in the midst of these teachings. And so I encourage you to gather together to discuss the sermons, to talk about and reflect about the life that you're living and and asking yourself a simple question. Am I living the Jesus way? As the Anabaptists, we're Christocentric, we're centered in Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves, is my life 
in Christ. As we move forward in this series, we're going to continue to challenge you in the different ways of Jesus. And so I'm excited uh, for the future. I'm excited for the next several weeks. And so I hope that you'll begin to track with us, to read the Gospels, and to really start to dig in to the Jesus way. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the sermon that was just preached and the leading of your spirit that brought it to us. And Father, I pray that we would learn the ways of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be people of the way. Father, strip away all the other nonsense in our lives and help us to just center our lives in Jesus. Father, as we go through this week, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would nudge us, and that you would press us forward into the ways of Jesus.